Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Good morning, Sojourn. My name is Paul Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, there, it looks like there's a few of you here I haven't met. If I haven't met you yet, welcome to Sojourn. I'm so glad that you're here. So glad that you have joined us this morning for worship. Um, and I'm glad if this is your first time at Sojourn, uh, we're having lunch together as a church in the courtyard right after this. So please make plans to stay around. We look forward to uh, sticking around, hearing a little bit about your story, sharing a little bit about ourselves, and just having some good burgers and hot dogs here in a few minutes. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and this morning, we come to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, this sermon series through the Gospel of Mark has been a wonderful series. So far, I love uh, the Gospels. Um, of course, love the whole Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for us as God's people. There is something special, though. I love at Sojourn that every year after Advent, we spend significant time in one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's something unique about looking at the person and work of Jesus directly as they're portrayed for us in the Gospels, looking at Jesus himself. And so this far in the Gospel of Mark, Mark has presented for us Jesus as a man of action. Uh, from the very beginning, we see Jesus conquering enemy after enemy. He's gone face to face with demons and the devil. He has miraculously healed the sick. He's cleansed a leper. And all the while, Jesus has been teaching many things. First and foremost, Jesus' ministry was one of teaching of revelation about the kingdom of God. Back in chapter one, Jesus had been healing many who were sick and many who were afflicted by demons. 
And as the crowds were kind of searching for him, because he would do these works and then he'd retreat to a desolate place, he'd do these works and then he'd retreat. And his disciples came to him as the crowds were searching for him and said, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. And Jesus' response, if you remember from back in chapter 1, verse 28, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so Jesus was doing amazing things. And it's clear that people are chasing after him to try to have him do those amazing things for them too. But when his disciples come to find him, his clarification to them is, we don't need to do everything that you think that we need to do. I'm here to preach. So let's go to the other towns so that they can hear about the kingdom. And so why is there this emphasis on teaching? It's because Jesus isn't merely a a powerful miracle worker. Jesus is the son of God. He's the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one promised and long-expected Messiah of Israel sent from heaven to bring long-awaited joy, peace, and salvation to God's people. And that is exactly what he's been doing. Jesus has been bringing in peace and healing in all of the things that he has been doing and teaching. And as the Gospel of Mark has gone on, the story has been intensifying somewhat. And it's interesting to say that it's been intensifying given that it kind of starts with him going face-to-face with the devil. Like, how do you get more intense? than a face-to-face battle with the devil. But what I mean by that is that Mark has begun to show us that Jesus' intent isn't merely to impress, but Jesus' intent is to bring people to a point of response. That is what has been intensifying. Jesus wants to bring people to a point of decision. Are you going to receive me for who I am? Last week, Dodds preached on the passage where Jesus and his disciples are on a boat when a storm comes up and they panic and Jesus then calms the storm with his voice. It's a powerful demonstration of Jesus' divine voice, the authority he wields with his voice over all of creation. And there, in the context of that miracle, for the first time, Jesus brings up the disciples' faith. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Jesus looks at them. That's the first time in the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus has been doing these things. He's been teaching these things. And then there in the boat, he looks at them and for the first time asks, are you picking up what I'm putting down? You know, where is your faith? After that, in between the passage that Dodge preached on last week and our passage for this morning, Jesus performs three miracles. And in all three of those miracles, he points either to the appropriate response to his healing or to faith and belief explicitly. In the first, he casts out this whole legion of demons. And then afterwards he says to the man, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how the Lord has had mercy on you. So he says, I'm not just doing this for you alone. I'm doing this so that you might respond in a particular way. Go and tell people about this. The second miracle, he heals a woman who's been sick for 12 years, who simply touches his robe and is healed. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. The third miracle uh, is when one of the rulers of the synagogue, right after this older woman was healed, one of the rulers of the synagogue comes in and tells him that his daughter has died. And Jesus says, do not fear, only believe. So the, the response to his ministry Jesus is kind of, you see, he's kind of intensifying. He's turning up the dial to say, this is, this is why I'm here. I'm here to provoke a response of faith. And after that miracle, Jesus goes back to his hometown where he's rejected. And we're told that he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus is looking for a particular response. So we see Jesus not as 
only a powerful miracle worker, while he certainly is that, but he is first and foremost a teacher who is increasingly looking for this response of faith. He is the son of God, proclaiming, revealing the kingdom of God, inviting them to respond to him as such. And so when we come to the feeding of the 5,000, we see that this trend is continuing. Rather than merely watching Jesus work, Jesus' disciples have recently returned from missionary journeys where they did and taught the things that Jesus had shown them to do and teach. And in this feeding of the 5,000, if you notice, we're going to see this, Jesus' disciples are actively involved from start to finish in the miracle itself. And so even with his disciples, he's gradually, he's showing them and then he's inviting them to do one thing and then another thing. So he's, there's this progression of response and involvement with Jesus. And as Jesus folds the disciples into the work of ministry with him, Jesus is clearly continuing to both teach and demonstrate his role as the Messianic king. And this feeding of the 5,000 is a particularly significant event in Jesus' ministry. This is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded for us in all four of the Gospels. And Mark gives this story, Mark himself, special attention. We know Mark as the briefest Gospel writer. He loves the word immediately. He's going from one thing to another. He uses three verses to tell a whole story. But here, Mark slows down in a way that's unique for him. He highlights a number of details for us. Later on in Mark's gospel, he's going to refer back to this story twice, both times to point out that his disciples didn't actually understand what Jesus was showing them in the feeding of the 5,000. The first time is in the very next event. Jesus walks on water right after this, and he calms another storm. And we're told, chapter 6, in verses 51 and 52, the disciples were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves. Jesus does this other amazing miracle, and they're astonished because they didn't, Mark tells us, because they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. The second time Mark refers back to this is in chapter 8 of his gospel, verses 17 through 21. Jesus is teaching on the leavening of the Pharisees and Herod, talking about bread. Um, and the disciples remember while he's talking to them about bread that they didn't have any bread with them. They only had one loaf. And so they start talking, oh my goodness, we don't have enough bread. And Jesus looks at them. This is what Jesus says, or this is what it says. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you took up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, seven. That's talking about the second feeding uh, miracle. And Jesus says to his disciples, do you not yet understand? And so later on, Jesus, Mark brings us back to the feeding of the 5,000. He gives this extended narrative. This is a particularly special miracle in Jesus' ministry. And there's clearly a lot going on in this story that involves Old Testament background, as we'll see. Jesus brings his disciples to the wilderness, which we've seen repeatedly in this series as a very significant place. He uh, sees them as sheep without a shepherd, and decides to teach them. That's an, old, uh, a, a, an important Old Testament detail. He has them reclining green grass, we read, which points back to Psalm 23. When Jesus performs this miracle, we're told that the people are fully satisfied by God in the wilderness. And so there's a lot going on in this passage. And as we look a bit closer here for the rest of our time this morning, not only are we going to see Jesus as this glorious king in perhaps the clearest yet depiction of the kingdom of God here on earth, but we also see, 
I think, three foundational, essential marks of healthy Christian discipleship. You see, Jesus came on a mission to secure salvation from sin for his people and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. This is nothing short of a project of worldwide renewal. And the church is the visible and tangible expression of this kingdom that Jesus came to establish. Pressing on, the church presses on to continue to expand this ministry of world renewal. But rather than trying to change the world through violence or through savvy politics or through amassing wealth and power and status in this world, the church is called to live lives of humility and love. The fruit of the Spirit, we're told in Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And needless to say, the world we live in does not encourage that kind of fruit. The storms that we face in our lives, our, our, our own flesh doesn't naturally respond to the storms of life, the chaos of the world around us with that kind of fruit. And so as the storms rage around us, as needs around us threaten to overwhelm us, we must have a model of discipleship focused on health, on remaining focused on what is most important, what the real goal of all that we do is, and on a sustainable understanding of our role in the mission that's been entrusted to us. And so what I want to spend the rest of our time looking at in this passage is three particular things that happen in this passage. We're going to look at how Jesus invites the disciples to withdraw with him to a desolate place. We're going to look at Jesus having compassion on these interrupting crowds. And we're going to look at Jesus giving miraculous provision, doing a lot with a little, as only God can do. And as we look at this, we're also going to see in those three things essential marks of healthy Christian discipleship. So let's jump in. Look with me at Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. It says this, The apostles returned to Jesus, told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So stop there. In the midst of being surrounded by needy people, Jesus invites the disciples to come away by themselves and rest a while. This is the only place in the gospel where Mark uses the word apostles. That's a word that literally means sent ones. And so that's, it's, it's a reflection of the fact that these disciples are just coming back from a really busy ministry of being sent to do a bunch of healing and, and casting out of demons. And they've just returned from their journeys. They've reported back to Jesus and Jesus' immediate response is, okay, now it's time to come away with me and rest a while. Why? So while the disciples have worked hard and they're in need of rest, this is more than simply Jesus saying, you need rest because you've been working hard, right? That Jesus is inviting them to a desolate place is mentioned twice here by Mark in verses 31 and 32. And it's worth noting also that the wilderness had played a pretty significant, like I said a moment ago, the wilderness has played a pretty significant role in the gospel of Mark to this point. Also, the fact that God provides rest for his people within the wilderness is a recurring theme in the Bible. To give just one example, Jeremiah chapter 31. If you're very familiar with the Bible, you may know that that's the same chapter where Jeremiah prophesies the coming new covenant. Right? The, the same chapter. At the beginning of that chapter, this is what Jeremiah writes. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace 
in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. So Jeremiah is pointing back and saying, Israel found rest in the wilderness. And that is very much tied to the coming of the new covenant, which will look a lot like God bringing people back to the wilderness to give them rest and grace. So here, when Jesus gathers his disciples with him by themselves in the wilderness, he's touching on this ancient hope of promised rest in the wilderness. In other words, this rest that Jesus invites his disciples to is more than simply taking a vacation after a hard season at work. The wilderness is where they can be with their God in a particular way. The wilderness is the place of revelation, of new life, of renewal. This would have been a really important picture for the disciples. There was a lot going on in the ancient world. There were people, there were factions, political factions rising up right and left saying, this is the way to the good life. This is when the Messianic age is going to come. There's all kinds of people saying we should go to war. There's Jews saying we should go to war against Rome. There's Jews saying we should never go to war again. There's all kinds of uh, uh, noise in the greater culture. And here the disciples are with power given from God. Something is changing. They have a very successful healing ministry that is in progress. Things are firing on all cylinders. Um, Hordes of people are seeking after them. And Jesus looks them in the eye and says, stop for a moment. Come away with me and rest. This would have caught them. Jesus, we can, we don't need to stop. We can, we've got all this power. We've got all this excitement. Here's the crowds. We can, we can just keep, keep doing this until, until the crowds stop coming. And Jesus says, they won't. You need to stop. Come away with me and rest. And this is the first foundational ingredient of Christian discipleship that we're given in our passage today, right here at the beginning. God's people regularly retreat from the crowds to seek after God's presence. God's people regularly retreat from the crowds to seek after God's presence. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says uh, what's a pretty well-known verse. He says, do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. One of the images that that conjures up in my mind um, is the image of a, a rag that's used to wipe countertops and tables, right? The rag is most uh, effective when it's wet, and after a while, if you keep wiping surfaces, it's going to eventually dry out. If you don't keep getting it wet, it's gonna eventually dry out. And this dryness of soul is an emptiness that you and I are both familiar with. It's, it's like a rag that has been squeezed too much or that's been left out and has become rough and brittle. When our souls feel empty, the temptation is to be filled with any number of things, to chase after any number of things, to find the fulfillment, to fill the void, to, to quench our thirst. And Paul in this verse says, he points to wine and says, don't try to fill your void with spirits, fill your void with the Holy Spirit. The only thing that can quench your thirst is God. One of the most wonderful invitations that Jesus gives us is to, to live a life of service to others. One of the paradoxes of the kingdom of God is that the way that you can truly find satisfaction uh, uh, is in seeking after the interests of others, in laying down your life for the sake of others. Because in doing that, in giving of yourself for others, you can find meaning and purpose and fulfillment that is unattainable when you're seeking after your own interests. 
But often, there can be a loneliness in a life of service to others. There's a weight in serving others that after a while can begin to feel like a lonely, isolating weight. If I'm just serving others, then who is serving me? If I'm supposed to lay down my wife, not just, lay down my life, not just for everyone around here, but also for my wife and my kids and my friends, then who is looking out for me? The temptation can be to look around and begin looking for other people to serve you. Sometimes we outright demand that others care for us better. More often though, we simply look to noise or to crowds. We want other people to entertain us. We want other people to just be around us. But those things are not the antidote to loneliness. In a book called Celebration of Discipline, uh, which you may have heard of, there's a pastor named Richard Foster who wrote the book Celebration of Discipline, and he outlines what he refers to as 12 essential disciplines of the Christian life. And one of those disciplines is the discipline of solitude. He opens his chapter on solitude with a pretty provocative statement. Jesus calls us from loneliness to solitude. He says, Jesus calls us from loneliness to solitude. Loneliness, Foster explains, is inner emptiness, whereas solitude is inner fulfillment. That's because solitude is more a state of mind than a place. You could be in the midst of a crowd enjoying a moment of solitude, or you could be a hermit who lives alone and never enjoys a moment of solitude. For the Christian, solitude is the fulfilling experience of being aware that you are not alone, but that you are fully and deeply known, loved, and cared for by God. And oftentimes, it takes withdrawing from crowds to get quiet enough to realize that we have been missing that first and most fundamental aspect of what it means to be a Christian, to be known and loved by God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, has two chapters back-to-back entitled The Day Together and then The Day Alone. Both, Bonhoeffer argues, both The Day Together and The Day Alone are essential for spiritual success. Here's what Bonhoeffer says. He says, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Each by itself has profound pitfalls and perils. One who wants fellowship without solitude plunges into the void of words and feelings. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity, self-infatuation, and despair. Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Richard Foster comments on this statement from Bonhoeffer and says, we must seek out the recreating stillness of solitude if we want to be able to be with others meaningfully. And we must seek the fellowship and accountability of others if we want to be alone safely. And I would say we are not very good at solitude today. It seems as though every moment of every day is filled with something someone, some noise, some show, some article, some opinion, some desire that's unmet. Every moment of every day is filled with noise and with people seeking after our attention. I think T.S. Eliot hit the nail on the head with respect to our culture when he wrote, where shall the world be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, because there is not enough silence. We are in an age of distraction, and it's no wonder that we are growing more polarized and less able to listen and engage with others well. You see, it's interesting 
that Richard Foster puts solitude in his list of outward disciplines. There's three kinds of disciplines in Foster's book. There's inward disciplines, outward disciplines, and collective or corporate disciplines that you do with other people. And solitude is an outward discipline. You would think it's, like a, it's an inward solo discipline, but solitude for him is an outward discipline. It's focused on God and then on others. Ecclesiastes 5 says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. The sacrifice of fools is basically humanly initiated religious talk. But then Ecclesiastes continues, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We have a hard time remaining silent enough to listen. We have a hard time remaining silent enough before God to actually hear what he's saying to us. We have a hard time being silent with other people to hear what they are saying to us. We, we so often use words to manage and to control others. If we're silent, who will take control? So we just keep talking. The truth is that if we're silent, then maybe God can take control, but he won't do it until we stop and listen. And so when we retreat from the crowds to a desolate place, we find quiet, we find a break from the noise. And when we find God there, we find that we are welcomed into a peace and rest that is otherworldly and which fills us in a way that changes how we engage with the world around us. As a 20th century monk, Thomas Merton once said, it is in deep solitude that I find the gentleness with which I can truly love my brothers. The more solitary I am, the more affection I have for them. Solitude and silence teach me to love my brothers for what they are, not for what they say. You see, the fruit of solitude is an increased sensitivity and compassion for others. A new freedom to be with people as they are. To be patient rather than impatient. To be gentle rather than harsh. To have our hearts set on serving instead of demanding to be served. So in short, solitude and silence, solitude and rest to make us better lovers of people because that love comes from the quiet place of solitude with God where we feel and experience the greatest love ever known, the love of God for his children. And it is from that love that we then to give, give that love to others rather than some kind of love that we try to manufacture ourselves. So that is the first mark of healthy discipleship that we're given here by Jesus. Healthy followers of Jesus regularly retreat from the crowds and seek after God's presence. Next, look with me at verses 33 and 34. Writes this. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So as Jesus and his disciples are headed to this place of solitude, this, this desolate, desolate wilderness place for a time of rest and solitude, they're interrupted by the crowds. But even as they're interrupted, even as these needs arose, we see that Jesus engages this interruption, not with anger, but with compassion. As the story takes shape, we're told another thing about Jesus. We see that the crowds are looking for the same things the disciples are looking for. 
The disciples are headed to find rest. And what are the crowds running after into the wilderness to find Jesus, their God? They're, 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 they're looking for rest too. And Jesus can't help but see and notice. We're told that he had compassion on the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The shepherd of the sheep picture is a metaphor that was common speech in Israel for a leader like Moses. Towards the end of his life, Moses prayed that the Lord would appoint a leader to take his place after he dies. Here's the words that Moses uses. Moses said this in Numbers 27. He said, let the Lord appoint a man over the congregation that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So Moses, this great leader of the people, is about to die. He says, Lord, would you please raise a man so that the congregation won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And then who does the Lord point to? He says, point to Joshua. What is the Hebrew version of Jesus? Yeshua, same name. In the book of Ezekiel, centuries after Moses prays this, God laments through the prophet Ezekiel that his sheep have not been shepherded. God says this, Ezekiel chapter 34, so they were scattered, speaking about his people, because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Ezekiel is prophesying judgment over the shepherds of Israel, the priests who are taking advantage of the people, devouring the sheep rather than feeding them. He says, my sheep were scattered. But then God promises a few verses later in Ezekiel 34 to, to send a faithful shepherd. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So in verse 34 of our passage, coming back to Mark chapter six, when Mark points out that Jesus had compassion on the crowds because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, Mark is bringing these background passages into an understanding of Jesus. Jesus is the greater Moses leading the people in the greater Exodus into the wilderness, into deliverance. Jesus is also the greater David, the shepherd, the good shepherd who provides rest and satisfaction for the people in the wilderness. So in other words, we are given a clear picture of Israel once more in the wilderness, experiencing the compassionate provision and care of their God. And this happens because instead of being angry when interrupted, Jesus responds instead with compassion. This is the second mark, I think, of healthy discipleship that we're given here by Jesus. Healthy followers of Jesus respond to interruption with gentleness and compassion remembering that other people are the goal of our presence here. Borrowing, uh, borrowing a bit from the first bit, uh, point, in our culture, I'm concerned that we have redefined rest. Rest is understood by many to be about detachment, about getting away, about entertainment, about being served. It's about us, it's about our self-care, about what other people can do for us. The problem is that when our understanding of rest becomes about detachment and becomes about us and becomes about de demanding that other people serve us and make space for us, then what we've done is we've made other people obstacles when they are in fact the goal. The overarching, the, the overarching understanding of what it means to be a biblical Christian is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength and 
to love your neighbor as yourself. If our understanding of rest turns other people, turns our neighbor into an obstacle in the way of what I want, then the whole biblical religion has been flipped upside down. And our kingdom is just that. It's our kingdom, not the kingdom of God. This reminds me of uh, this, this moment of Jesus having compassion on the crowds when interrupted. Reminds me of um, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. If you're familiar of the story, with the story, Jesus has just done a ton of ministry in one region. He's traveling in the heat of the day to another region to do some more ministry. And he and his disciples are exhausted, they're tired, and so they sit beside a well. He sits because he's so tired. Uh, dead tired is like a paraphrase of the word that's used to describe Jesus at that particular occasion while his disciples go get food. So Jesus is sitting there and here comes this woman to the well. She's kind of an outcast in society. And if there was ever a moment that Jesus could have pulled the self-care card, it was right there. He had been doing a ton of ministry he was dead tired in the heat of the day. He was going to do a bunch of other ministry. If there was ever a moment, he could have just kept his head down and not said anything to this woman because she didn't say anything to him. Right? He was the one who initiated the conversation. He said, would you pull me up a drink of water? Leading to a conversation where he was teaching her about the kingdom of God. If there was ever a time when he could have pulled the self-care card, this would have been it. But he's there. He sees her. He engages her with gentleness with love, with truth. He could have seen her as an obstacle in the way of his rest, but he didn't. He engaged her with gentleness, with respect, with more honor than she thought that she deserved. The question that this brings us to for ourselves is this. Are we interruptible like this? Are you interruptible like this? It's important to set aside intentional time to engage with and to love and serve others like Jesus did in his ministry in Judea. He was, he was on his way from Judea to Galilee and the story of the Samaritan woman. It's important to set aside intentional time to engage in ministry. We need to set aside time to serve others. And it's also important to set aside time to rest. But what, how do we engage with those in-between moments in our lives? When we're grocery shopping, when we're driving down the road and someone turns on their blinker, when we're waiting in line somewhere, when we're walking through airport security, when we finally get a chance to unplug from whatever we're working on to just sit down somewhere to rest. If God brought a relational opportunity to your life at one of those in-between moments in your life, would you take it? Do you hold your plans for your life with a closed hand, or are you willing to be interruptible for the sake of those God brings across your path? Do you know the primary reason you're here? To love God and to love others. If your primary reason for being here is self-preservation, self-care, survival, then that will probably influence how you interact with your time. If your primary reason for being here is to follow in Jesus' footsteps, by instead laying down your life for his sake and for the sake of those around you, then you'll probably, that'll probably lead you to a very different kind of life and interaction with your time. So in this, in, as we consider how we respond to interruption, this is as much, of course, a diagnostic tool 
as it is something to pursue. If we struggle with compassion in the face of interruption, it calls into question, have we found the rest of God in the wilderness? Have we found the love of God in the quiet place? This brings us to, of course, the third thing, the miracle at hand. Look with me at verses 35 through 44. And when it grew late, Jesus' disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send these people away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So here we get to the miracle itself. The disciples see a problem brewing. It's getting late. There is no food. And there's 5,000 people, 5,000 men, which could have been anywhere between 10 and 20,000 people. The word there is not the the word that could be translated brothers and sisters or men and women. It is a word that means men, 5,000 men. So it could be including women and children. This is 10,000 people. For reference, the, the populations of Capernaum and Bethsaida, which were probably the closest towns, were probably around two to 3,000 people. And so this is an enormous number of people. And the disciples see a problem growing. Probably even if they sent them to the surrounding towns, there may not have even been enough food if you think about the numbers of people who usually live in those towns. So they see a problem brewing and then Jesus tells them to give the crowd something to eat. And they are utterly unprepared for this request. They look at what they have. They look back at Jesus and they almost sarcastically ask, do you want us to go buy 200 denarii worth of bread for them? A denarii, that's a day's wage. So 200 days wage for your average worker. So they they may have had that money with them. Probably they wouldn't have. And it was more of a sarcastic question. Their response echoes the cry of Moses in the wilderness. When God has led his people out of slavery into the wilderness and the people get hungry. Remember what Moses prays? Numbers chapter 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant and why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay all the burden of this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat? This is Moses' question to the Lord. Where am I to get meat to give all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. So it's a little bit more colorful than the disciples response to Jesus, but you see the similarities. God has led his people into the wilderness and says, Moses, you're gonna lead my people through the wilderness into the promised land. And they come to Moses asking for food. And and Moses says, where am I gonna get meat to feed all these people? Hundreds of thousands of people. Jesus' disciples, Jesus looks at them and says, hey, the people have come out to the wilderness to meet with their God, to be delivered into the promised land of new creation. How about you go feed them? And they look at their hands, they look at the food and say, are you crazy, Jesus? 
In contrast to the circumstances of all the other miracles that Jesus performs, this situation seems to have been deliberately created by Jesus to teach the disciples about himself, to demonstrate how gospel ministry is to take place. As we see the 12 disciples display here and in the following stories, a lack of understanding. But let's look at how Mark presents this for us at a few things that he describes. First, I do want to point out that this is positioned directly after Herod's feast. If you notice, the story just before this is the story of another feast. Feast of King Herod where John the Baptist is beheaded. And it's a, it's a, it's a feast of splendor, of delicacies, of wealth, of richness. And that story, Mark is always very careful with how he structures things. The fact that Herod's feast is presented right before the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus's feast is positioned intentionally to show the contrast between the rich aura of Herod's feast and the simplicity and poverty of Jesus's satisfaction of the multitude with a peasant's diet. This is really a peasant's diet. These loaves and fish, this would have been smaller, flatter loaves than we're accustomed to in the modern world. And these fish would have been dried and salted for preservation. They didn't have refrigerated. So, you know, there's kind of pictures that we see of the, in the kids' story Bibles of this. You see all these kind of like floppy fish in baskets. Um, this would have been dried, salted fish and small, flat loaves. And in, in spite of Herod's pretensions to royalty, the people under Herod are as leaderless as sheep who possess no shepherd. But in contrast to this drunken feast, Mark exhibits the glory of God unveiled through the abundant provision of ordinary food in the wilderness where Jesus is, Israel's faithful shepherd. As one commentator put it, unlike Herod's banquet, the primary purpose of which was to bolster Herod's position with the crowds, unlike that, Jesus' banquet is not provided to boost his standing with the crowds, but rather to minister to their actual needs. Jesus' compassion on the multitudes and the manner in which he satisfies their needs are a dramatic contrast to Herod's self-serving and deadly party. In other words, Jesus' ministry here, the purpose of this miracle is not to gain a reputation for himself, but it's actually to serve. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Second detail is notice how Jesus makes them recline in green pastures in defined groups. If you notice the grass here, Mark highlights the fact that they sit down in the green grass. This wouldn't have contradicted the wilderness. The, the wilderness was a kind of a rich understanding of any area separate from large populations, and it would have been a common place to pasture flocks. And so for there to be grass wouldn't have been unheard of. But in the context of, of the prophetic tr tradition, we also see in Mark pointing to green grass, the fact that the Lord is making the wilderness a place of life, a place of plenty, a place of provision. The Lord is assembling true Israel in the desert. We see this picture. Um, when Mark includes the detail of, uh, of, of the, the, the groups, how does he say it? Didn't write this down. When he assembles them in groups by hundreds and by fifties, this is, the Lord, this is a picture of the Lord assembling true Israel in the desert. Um, this echoes Exodus chapter 18, where God gives Moses instructions for how to organize the camp of Israel the ideal organization of God's people and says Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens. And this particular detail is striking in Mark because um, there's a recent archeological discovery about a hundred years ago 
uh, it, within the last 100 years from the Qumran community, and they discovered a lot of documents that talk about Judaism and Jewish practice and expectation from extra-biblical texts from around the time of Jesus' life and ministry. And this group, this particular phrase is used to describe the coming age of the Messiah who will organize God's people in the hundreds and the fifties. And so that this detail is included here in the Gospel of Mark is a particularly poignant detail. The point of that is that Jesus is the Savior, this second Moses who transforms a leaderless flock into the people of God. And we see this detail, thirdly, that the people are fully satisfied. After they eat, there are extras collected. Right? It's that we're told that the disciples collect 12 baskets of extras, extra pieces of bread and fish. There's one of these baskets for every disciple. And of course, the number 12, 12 calls us back to the 12 tribes of Israel, Christ's super abundant provision for all of God's people. Jesus is the good shepherd who provides for all of their needs so that they lack nothing. And to tie those two details together, Jesus seeding the, the crowds in the green grass, Jesus providing for all their needs, calls to mind, of course, the, the, the psalm of the good shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I shall not want all of my needs are met. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus has the people recline in green pastures. There's clearly laden imagery of Jesus being the good shepherd come for his people. And then the last detail that I want to point out is this. The miracle that Jesus performs here, I mentioned this earlier, uses both the hands and the original resources, the, the food of the disciples. So if you notice, the, the things that Jesus uses to perform this miracle come entirely from the disciples. The original substance of the bread and the fish and the actual hands distributing the food. Jesus breaks the bread and he gives it to the disciples. And then we're actually not told the interest here in, the, in this story, in this miracle, we're not told how the bread and fish multiply, whether it multiplies in Jesus's hands as he's giving you know, to, to, to the disciples or whether it multiplies in their hands as they're giving out, but that's not important. Clearly what, we, what we're supposed to see here is that Jesus uses for this miracle the disciples' resources and the disciples' own hands. At first, the disciples doubt. Their complaint is about what they lack, but Jesus focuses on what they possess. Where Jesus' disciples see only impossibility, Jesus sees possibility because God can multiply even the smallest gifts that we make available to him. And so here we see the third essential mark of healthy discipleship. Healthy followers of Jesus take God at his word, trusting their savior rather than what their eyes can see and watch as he does what only he can do. Healthy followers of Jesus take God at his word, trusting his word rather than their eyes and watch as he does what only he can do. As I said a moment ago, Jesus is clearly the author of this moment. He brought this situation about. He did this to teach them something. He's saying to his disciples, you have all that you need because I am here. You can get away and rest. You don't have to worry about the needs of all of the crowds who are coming around you. You can get away because I am here. I'll take care of them and I'll take care of you. You can let people interrupt you. They will. Don't worry about your original plans. I placed that person in your life so that you can care for them and meet their needs right now and show them compassion. You don't have to worry about your plans. You can trust me because I am holding all things together in my hands. 
And even when your eye is telling you that this isn't going to work, God says, Jesus is saying to his disciples, even when your eye is telling you this isn't going to work, don't live by sight, but by faith in me through the word that I've given you. Live by my word and watch as I do what only I can do. Watch as I do what I have promised to do. You see, it's a natural reaction that the disciples had when Jesus said, you go feed these people. That's a natural reaction. They looked around at this enormous multitude and they looked at five loaves and two fish and said, it's not gonna happen, Jesus. Jesus said, do it anyway. Listen to my words. Don't, don't limit your ministry based upon what your eyes can see. Don't fix your eyes on the storm around you. Fix your eyes on me and just listen to what I'm telling you to do and I will make your hands fruitful. I will do the rest. It's interesting. I'll skip that part. Okay. Yes. So we see here that um, Jesus... In this ingredient, this third mark of healthy discipleship, healthy followers of Jesus take God at his word, we see that true Christian discipleship is about letting go of the outcome. We had a prayer gathering a couple of weeks ago here at Sojourn, and Dodds led us through a time of prayer uh, on letting go. And we asked God the question. We asked one another the question, if you were here for that prayer gathering, we, we asked one another the question. What is the thing that you think that God is inviting? This is a paraphrase. I don't know if this is the actual question. This is as, as I remember it. What, what is the Lord asking you to let go of? What is the Lord inviting you to let go of and entrust to him? True Christian discipleship is letting go. We have in, mind, we have in our minds so often what it means to be faithful disciples. We have in our minds so often what it looks like to be successful in our ministry together. We have in our minds so often the perfect neighborhood parish that we want to be a part of. Jesus is inviting us. You, you, you might not know what the outcome is going to look like. He gives us pictures to pursue, but then he gives us more than outcomes to pursue. He gives us fruits to bear in our lives. He says, as you, look, as you live and walk in line with the Spirit, if you, try to if, if you try to grasp control over situations with your words, with your desires, with your actions, that is how you bear the fruits of the flesh and self-centeredness. Because true discipleship is about letting go of the outcome and trusting God to do what only God can do. If we don't let go of outcomes, we won't stop long enough to meet God in the quiet place. If, we are so, if our eyes are so fixed on our picture of what we want the world to look like, what we want our lives to look like, we won't stop long enough to meet God in the quiet place. But if we are able to stop, to look at him, to take him at his word, we will see that he is trustworthy. We will see uh, that he is willing and we will see that as we give our lives to the ordinary ministry of the gospel, as we give our lives to the ordinary one another's of Scripture, as we fix, as we get away in the quiet place with God, whether we're in a room full of people and enjoying a moment of solitude, or whether we're on a retreat because the noise around us is too large, whatever it looks like, if we can get away and fix our eyes on God and hear what the Lord is saying to us, receive His love, and we then begin to love people with gentleness and compassion and care instead of anger 
and, and, and self-centered. You, you gotta get out of my way because you're an obstacle. This is what I'm trying to do. If we can turn our, turn, you know, receive the love of God in a way that transitions, it turns it into a love of neighbor, then we will see as God bears the fruit that only he can bear. And he multiplies the ordinary work of our lives into an abundant harvest. So three essential ingredients, marks of a Christian life. We are a people who retreat to encounter God in the wilderness. We are a people who engage interruption with compassion. And we are a people who make room for God to do what only God can do. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means to come away to a desolate place with you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us what it means to be patient with the people around us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to let go of the outcomes that we have in our mind and trust that living life by your word rather than by what our eyes can see is the way to rest, to life, and to fruitfulness, to fulfillment. Lord, I pray that you would make us desperate for your presence and for your power. I pray that you would help us to ask you to do what we want, what we see that you want us to want in your word. I pray that you would make us desperate in prayer to ask for those things rather than trying to seize control ourselves. I picture the persistent widow, the, the parable of the persistent widow that you tell Jesus. She's not someone who went and took matters in her own hands in terms of rectifying things. She just kept knocking, knocking at the only person who could help her. I pray that you would make us persistent desperate widows. Pray that you would make us people who pray and who depend on you to do what only you can do. I pray that you would bear fruit in our lives together as we pursue loving you, loving others, and letting go. For your glory, for the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen.